Welcome to the Halloween episode of the SNR podcast. I'm your host, Saliba Ismail. I don't think I have to spend a lot of time describing how this year has been scary and full of uncertainty for us all. So for this Halloween special, I have asked the safe and reliable team to share stories from times in their past where they have felt scared in a work-related situation to remind us that we are not alone in these feelings, that we can get through the fear and maybe even come out on the other side resilient and perhaps a little wiser and with more courage to face it the next time around. Please note that a couple stories include graphic descriptions, including health issues and death. So take care while listening. Our first story is called Louisa, courtesy of Anne-Marie Heath. Something that scared me. I was working in the Dominican Republic in what they call a tertiary care center. However, they don't have running water. They don't regularly have electricity. The toilets don't work. There's no way to wash your hands. Supplies are minimal. I was taking care of Louisa. She's a 19-year-old. It was her first baby. She had pushed a long time. After she delivered, she began to bleed. She bled and she bled. I didn't have the equipment I was used to in the United States. I didn't have the medications I needed. I didn't have the light I needed. So I was kneeling on the floor trying to see where the bleeding was coming from. A nursing student I had brought with me was taking her blood pressures and her pulse. I saw she was bleeding from a laceration, but I could not see well enough to find out where that laceration was. I did not have enough gauze to pack up the laceration or to be able to clear the way to see. I had one suture needle, where in the States I would often have 10. The nurse told me that she started to lose her blood pressure. The patient was getting paler. She was becoming unconscious. She was beginning to twitch. I did not know what to do. I felt like I would lose her. I asked the Dominican nurses to go as quickly as they could to find a doctor, any doctor, who knew how to deal with these situations in this environment. They came back with a doctor. We'll call her Dr. Lopez. Dr. Lopez entered the room, screaming and yelling, not believing that the Americana Estupida was putting a woman's life at risk. I didn't care that she was yelling at me. I just wanted her to try and save this woman's life. She was able to, whether it was because the blood flow had stopped so much because the woman was in such critical condition, whether it was because of her skills and and being accustomed to working in this environment, but she was able to suture up the laceration and stop the bleeding. The woman survived. We went out and used our pocket money, our own money to buy blood for her so she could receive four units of blood. She's healthy. She's fine. I've never come so close to losing my patient. Our next story is titled Expert Who by Jean Ann Wirtz. I think one of the scariest moments I've had in my career was the first time I was introduced to a group of people as an expert. And I was thinking, who are they talking about? They couldn't possibly be talking about me, but uh, they were. And in that moment, I was faced with a choice, right? I could sit back and shrink, or I could step up and present what I knew and have confidence in my knowledge. And that's what I did. And I kind of just had a conversation about the topic and tried to bring some levity in and tried to calm my shaking hands and my, you know, what I thought was a quivering voice. But it dawned on me in that moment that 
it didn't matter if I was a quote-unquote expert or not. I was there to do something, and that was to reach out and touch the hearts and minds of the folks in the audience. And to do that, I just had to be me. And so that's what I did. And I survived. And the next time it was scary again, but it was just a little less scary. And eventually it it gets easier and easier. But I think that was one of my biggest uh, fear moments. This next story is called First Impressions by Elnor Jamal. I had just graduated from undergrad and was looking to gain more healthcare experience and landed an amazing opportunity in the developing world working for one of Asia's largest private hospitals. My role was that of an intern in many ways, seeking to identify opportunities within the hospital where I could add value and further my experience and essentially build out my skills. As part of that, on my first day, I was assigned to work in the cath lab. Within minutes of being on the job, we had a sentinel event occur. Turns out that one of the patients who was receiving an angiography, some sort of medical error happened and he died. And that was the first time that the cath lab had experienced such an event. You can imagine the panic, the stress, the franticness within the cath lab. For me, obviously, With it being my first day, I was super uh, taken aback, super scared, didn't know what was going on until much later when I was able to sink my teeth into exactly what had happened and why, you know, this all could have been avoided. All that to say, my very first healthcare experience, my very first moment within the healthcare space turned out to be the moment that really defined and sort of helped me chart a course for my career. Up next... Please enjoy A Costly Error by Dan Kramer. The most afraid I've ever been on a job is when I first started out out of college, I got a job as a developer and my first assignment was to create a pager alert uh, for any time an, an event happened at a hospital. And in order to test that, I decided I'd pick an event that happened often so I could quickly get a page and make sure it was working. So I picked any time someone at the hospital would transfer beds or, or get an assignment to a new bed, which in a hospital with 400 beds happens a lot. So I tested it out. It worked fine. And then I went on to my next task. At the end of the month, my manager called me into his office and asked me if I had a pager alert that was running. And that's when I remembered that I had not turned it off. And this pager kept going off every time someone changed beds or an update was made to a bed assignment at this hospital the entire month. And we had been given an $800 pager bill because of this mistake that I had made by not turning it off. My manager handled it very well. I learned a lot, and I never made that mistake again. The next story is called Imposter Syndrome by Mark Broker. Hello, everyone. Happy Halloween. Here's my confession of when I was scared. There's lots of to choose from, but this is one that relates to what we're doing about leadership. Bottom line is I was going into uh, my command tour, and a couple nights before, I was going to take over. I had a bit of a panic attack. Got really scared and uh, uh, doubted whether I was qualified for that job. And frankly, that was not an irrational fear. There are a lot of people more qualified than me to date that job. And I knew it now. A lot of other people knew. But anyway, I was very, very scared. And I got through the night and uh, did a little praying and whatnot and got myself through it and uh, assumed command and, and things actually worked out well. So anyway, that was a time I was afraid. 
really, the, I guess the theme is going into a job that you're not sure you're qualified for, and uh, that was my fear. This next relatable story is titled Heights Are Roof by Alan Frankel. About eight years ago, I decided to build a woodshed. And once I got started, it became more of a project than I'd, anything I'd ever imagined. And it's been fantastic. Uh, the only problem was, as you look at it, it's a good 20 feet up to the top of that. And it went pretty well until I got to the last part where I had to put the shingles on the roof. Then all of a sudden, it didn't go so well because I started climbing up on that roof and I was absolutely terrified. Anyway, I climbed back down and then I went and got a rope and I had a harness that I put on and I tied the harness to the trees on each side, threw the rope all the way over and then I'd climb up to the top of it and I had the harness on while I was putting on the shingles. But I gotta tell you, I was on my hands and knees the whole time. Never enjoyed it for one second. And I have to tell you, standing up on that roof, I thought, good grief, I'm gonna slide off this thing or come off the side of it. Why on earth am I doing this? The lesson, I'm never getting up on a roof again, uh, maybe in my younger days, but not today. Our next story is called The Voicemail by Nancy Walsh. In my role as a system VP, I gave a report to the quality committee of the board. One of the physicians in the meeting was terribly upset that the issue was reported and discussed. Now, this person had a history of angry outbursts and was physically large and imposing. I picked up a voicemail from him later that evening that was toxic, loud, and full of vitriol. I felt scared and fretted about it overnight. The next day, I replied to his voicemail by sending it back to him. My message said, this is how you sound on voicemail. I understand that you were upset, and I welcome a civil, respectful conversation with you. But this type of voicemail is unacceptable, and please do not do this to me again or to anyone else. Thank you. He later apologized. This creepy penultimate story is called The Misunderstanding by Maureen Fry. I had a patient who was nine months pregnant in status asthmaticus. She couldn't breathe and we were going to have to intubate her, which was not an easy thing at this point. It was very scary, very traumatic. And her brother was at the foot of the bed and he had come in with her. And so he asked if I would step away as the team was going to resuscitate her and intubate her. He asked if he could speak with me privately. And so I did what any person would do is I offered him a very private location, a grieving room, a counseling room, where we sat down in the room together. And at that point, he, I said, what can I do for you? And he's what I thought was crying. And he said, I feel like I want to kill you. And in that moment, the first response out of my mouth was the most ridiculous thing I've ever done in my life. I said, why me? <laughs> and so at that, I said, I think my phone's ringing. And I jumped up and left the room and closed the door and called for help. And I was scared. I was incredibly scared that in that moment of trying to care for somebody else that I neglected, probably to be able to put some limits for my own protection. Turned out that he was under the influence of a lot of drugs and that he probably was not as at risk to me as I thought in the moment, but he did have a weapon on him. And in that moment, I realized that I assumed that his sniffling was crying and his sniffling was in fact that he had snorted cocaine and he had a lot of nasal changes, so he sniffed all the time. He was always with a runny nose. So I got lucky, but that was one of the scariest days of my life. Finally, a true ghost story by Paul Green. We did our best. 
We tried to save the hospitals. We wanted them open for the communities they served, which were poor, filled with people of color. The hospital system had committed Medicare fraud and had a whole list of patient safety issues going back years. We tried to resurrect them, but unfortunately, we were unable to gain the financial backing we need to keep the hospitals going. When payroll bounced, we knew it was the end, and we worked with the state authorities to close the six campuses of this four hospital system. We closed the hospitals in a week, and we asked people to leave as soon as they could so that we could avoid gathering more payroll debt. I stuck around to try to deal with the aftermath of the closures, trying to keep the licensure pieces intact, trying to keep the buildings intact, dealing with tens of thousands of boxes of medical records and business records collected over the years that were stored in every place you could imagine, trying to deal with the equipment that was left and understanding what we would do with it. On this particular day, I entered the hospital. It was dark. The electricity was off. The only one in the building was myself and down in the lobby, a couple of security guards and an engineer. I went to the top of the building and stepped out into one of the eighth floor nursing units, which was the maternity ward. Half empty coffee cups, a moldering orange, rotted food in the refrigerator were remnants of a staff that left in a hurry. The floor was eerie. The doors were open to the patient room, some of the blinds were open, some were closed, casting myriads of shadows across the hallways and the rooms. I went to the newborn nursery. There were some isolates we could save. There was some other equipment that we could salvage and sell. Much of it, though, was outdated and had to be donated. I looked in each room to see what was available. Some had nothing. Some had old beds. Some had boxes of records, business records, files. Many of them were dreary from the blinds being closed. However, I rounded the nurse's station and went back to the corner where there was a beautifully sunlit room in the corner, two walls of windows, light and cheery on this Southern California morning. I stepped into that room and was suddenly struck. The temperature dropped 30 degrees and the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. I was overwhelmed with a feeling of dread and grief and sorrow. I stood stuck to my spot unable to move until grief finally overcame me. Tears came in my eyes and I left that room. Shocked, upset, I left the floor and said, I'm gonna, I I have to leave this unit. I took the stairs down, a couple more units, and got to the fifth floor. Now this unit had been deserted for quite a while in the beginning. So a lot of the doors were closed, the blinds were shuttered, it was dark, it was murky. And I stepped out into the floor, headed to the nurse's station and swore there were footsteps behind me. Now, I knew this was impossible because I was the only one in the building. And after what I had just experienced on the maternity ward, I was not about to stick around. I left that unit and went to the med surge unit on the third floor. This unit had been active before we were closed. It was probably the one unit that had the greatest number of patients. So doors were open, blinds were open. The unit was picked up and clean. It looked like nurses had taken time to pack up their files, pack up their detrius from their work day. And in all in all, a pleasant atmosphere on this floor. I walked around, got down one of the side corridors, when suddenly someone ran past me. And I thought to myself, how can somebody be running past me? I'm alone, but I swear, someone ran past me, ran into room 376 and slammed the door. Worried that somebody had gotten into the building and maybe doing damage to the building, I went to room 376 and with trepidation pushed the door open. The room was empty. I know what I saw. 
I know what happened. I know someone ran past me. I know that door closed. But that was enough for me for the day. I said, I'm, I'm leaving. I took the stairs down to the lobby and I must have looked upset because the security guards and the engineers started to laugh at me. I responded saying, guys, what, why are you laughing at me? They said, so tell us, did you see Maria or Edgar? I'm like, what are, you, what are you talking about, Maria or Edgar? So they proceeded to tell me the stories. Maria was a young woman who died from a postpartum hemorrhage in that sunlit corner room in which I had felt the temperature plunge and the grief plunge over me. She died screaming for help. No one could hear her in the corner and no one had rounded on her. By the time they checked on Maria, she had had so much blood loss that she couldn't be resuscitated and so she had died alone and frightened. In terms of Edgar, Edgar was a psych patient who had been admitted to the med surge unit. Edgar had uncontrolled diabetes, but his endocrine disorders also were affecting his mental health status and his psychotropic meds. They gave Edgar his medications, tried to deal with him, but he became more and more psychotic, more frightened, and more paranoid as time went on in the med surge unit. Finally, one day, he overheard the nurses talking about him at the nurse's station. He became frightened, ran down the hall into, you guessed it, room 376, and slammed the door shut and managed to lock it. As the nurses were desperately trying to get the door open, Edgar hung himself in the bathroom. Now, I think traumatic events leave an energy imprint behind them, and I think that's what I experienced those days, was those energy imprints from those traumatic events. What it says to me is that sentinel events, errors, harm, echo long beyond their initial occurrence. In this case, there was energy remnants within the building that could be sensed. But more importantly, there were stories about Maria and Edgar that even the security guards and the engineers knew long after these tragedies had struck. I hope Maria and Edgar found peace. But I also hope that the lessons and the stories from Maria and Edgar are not forgotten and lost. And that's my experience of these horrible events. If you would like to find out more about these stories or the people behind them, check out the Safe and Reliable website or email podcast at srh.care. That's all for today. The Safe and Reliable podcast is produced and edited by me, Salima Ismail. Our Halloween theme music, Dark Mallet Bells, provided by It's Mocha Jones from freesound.org. Special thanks to our guests in order of appearance, Anne-Marie Heath, Jean Ann Wirtz, Ulnar Jamal, Dan Kramer, Mark Broker, Alan Frankel, Nancy Walsh, Maureen Fry, and Paul Green. And a very special thanks to you for tuning in. Happy Halloween! <laughs>